So the reading that we've just read, the 1 Corinthians passage, uh, most of you will recognize if you've ever been to a wedding. It's pretty much the standard. Um, Actually, I was at a wedding uh, just two weeks ago, and they said that the Bible has been replaced by the most, uh, sorry, it used to be the most uh, read book in weddings, and it's now been replaced by a children's story about uh, a little rabbit and its mother who's trying to prove to each other how much they love each other. But that passage is still, it's the standard, isn't it? You go to a wedding, you think, I'm going to hear the 1 Corinthians passage. But actually, what we're looking at this morning is two verses from John chapter 13. They're the kind of the core of what we're looking at. Um, so if you want to turn to John 13 and, uh, and keep it in front of you so you can make sure I'm not going off on too many tangents, it's just verses 34 and 35. And the title for this morning, if, uh, if you're writing notes, is really, Love is a Verb. So those two verses... 34 and 35 in John chapter 13. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's Jesus speaking. Now, as I said, when I was asked to come and preach, and these two verses were kind of presented in front of me, I, the scope was huge. I, I could be here for hours. I'm not going to be because I know that it's, it's warm and it's a nice Sunday and we want to get out and, and share what we learn, obviously. So I, I was given this, uh, this context of discipleship. I was given this, these two verses of, of John. And I was instantly presented with one massive problem. And the problem is I'm not an expert on love. I was, as, as I've said, I was married a little under two months ago. And even with the, the fresh memory of that day, the promises that were made between my wife and I, I've actually learned more about the subject of love just through studying these two verses than in all of the lead up to that day. Now, that might just be because I was really underprepared, but I like to think that it's just because this was God's word speaking to me. But as I reflected on on these words, I realized actually just how inadequate my knowledge of this subject matter of love actually was. But that's all right. And why is that? It's because I'm a disciple too. I'm still undergoing discipleship. The process of discipleship is not something that you outgrow. And I'm sure that this has been reiterated over previous weeks. Discipleship in following Jesus is... It isn't something that is only applicable to those that are new converts. I looked up the definition of discipleship on Wikipedia. And it it says, in its natural state, discipline is systematic instruction intended to train a person, sometimes literally called a disciple, in a craft, trade, or other activity. Or to follow a particular code of conduct or order. And what's the activity that we're training in this morning? But it's the discipline of love. And this side of glory, there is always work to be done about learning more about this discipline. In fact, one of the beauties that I found of these verses and others on this subject in Scripture is no matter how long you study them, there is always something more that can be learnt. Now, as I say, I was at a friend's wedding a, a couple of weeks ago. 
and uh, the, a story was recounted about a, another couple, this couple who loved games. And they played a game throughout their married life called Schmiley. If you can just about read that, that scrawl on the screen. Now, in this game, played throughout their married life together, each took in turn to write down Schmiley on something, usually small, and they hid it around the house for the other person to find. They would seek it out, and when they found it, they would then write it somewhere else. It would be found everywhere, on old receipts, on the condensation, on a mirror. On one occasion, the wife even unrolled an entire toilet roll, wrote it on the last sheet, and rolled it back up again, <laughs> just for her husband to find. But what did Schmiley signify? Well, S-H-M-I-L-Y stands for see how much I love you. And after a lifetime of faithfulness, the floral wreath that the husband arranged for his wife just said, Shmiley. Well, is that the kind of love that we're thinking about this morning? Well, yes and no. The kind of love we're thinking about this morning, particularly when it comes to discipleship, is something that can be seen. The love we're talking about this morning is, is real, it's tangible, it's reach out and touchable love. It's a demonstratable love. And how can I be so sure? I did say to keep those two verses out in front of you. Because right there in the verse, this type of love that Jesus is teaching about, this love, he says, by this demonstrable love, all men will know that you are my disciples. People will literally see the outcome of this love that we're reading about. But first, rather than starting at the end and working back, we're going to... We need to put what we're looking at in a bit of context to make sure that we are treating God's word as just that, as God's word. So first, we need to remind ourselves of the context of the book. Why is John writing these words at all? That question is answered in John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, I am writing these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Therefore, everything that John writes in his gospel are in line with that goal. Now, before those that asked me to come and speak this morning start getting shifty in their seats, I should confirm the following. There is no difference between John's goal in writing his gospel to encourage people to believe and the primary focus of this morning's message. To encourage those who do believe to put their belief into action through active discipleship. And the reason is because John is writing this so that people would have life in its fullness. And one way we can do that, to live life to the full, live as God designed us to do, is to love God and to love each other as God designed us to. Simply put, we are designed as relational beings. Just as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit shared fellowship for all eternity past, So we are made for relationship. It seems only right that God would have something to say about how best to live in relationship. Now the Jewish leaders of the day, and to an extent the Jewish people as well, had taken the commandment in Deuteronomy to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul and strength. But they'd ignored the principle behind it and the instruction of loving God's people. The rules that they were adhering to almost took love completely out of the equation. Serving the Lord had become a chore, a task, a a source of individual pride. And it's into this culture 
that these words come. Now, more locally, the immediate situation into which these words were actually spoken was as Jesus had just shared a meal in the upper room with his disciples, his closest friends. Judas has just set off from the room to go and betray Jesus. Judas had proved himself a false brother, and now as the remaining brethren sit round, Jesus' words are those that I would imagine they would look back on over the next few days. As they did so, they would be reminded to love one another. As this group of early believers would come under attack and persecution from those around, these words would be ringing in their ears. Love one another as I have loved you. As they feared perhaps whether others of their brothers would betray them, Jesus' words were to sound out and remind them to continue persisting in loving one another. These words, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, we're just going to look at three aspects of these words and then some application. There is so much more than could be said. We're going to look at uh, these three headings, the master, the example, and the motivation. First, the master. Now, I'm always a bit of a late preparer when I come to write talks, just like this morning. I was still writing this yesterday. Actually, truth be known, I was still writing it this morning. But that's a conversation for another time. On this one occasion, though, it actually worked in my favor, I hope, in that it gave me a good appreciation of something I otherwise might have missed. Who heard the thunder and saw the lightning over the last couple of days? Brief show of hands. Pretty much everyone, yeah. It was pretty spectacular. And again, Wikipedia came to my aid. The amount of electrical current in an average bolt of lightning is 30,000 amps, which is the equivalent current required by over 3,300 kettles. Large lightning bolts can contain up to 120,000 amps, which is a lot of kettles. Now, why am I mentioning that? Well, John 1.3 reads that through him, that is Jesus, who is saying these words, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, including the lightning. This powerful lightning that we've experienced over the last couple of days was made by Jesus, and he is telling us to love one another. Jesus was eternally with God the Father and God the Spirit, the triune God. Jesus shared communion perfectly with the Godhead for eternity past. And then, in verse 14, the word, this is still in John's Gospel, not the verses we're looking at now. This Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. He came from the Father, giving up the glory and honor and the power to be confined in a human body, the very vessel of creation, the very author of creation, being part of the creation that he has brought into being. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he became a man. So to his disciples, Jesus wasn't just teaching them as a friend 
or a good teacher. He was teaching them as this very person who had created all things, including love, that he was talking about. Jesus' authority, uh, seen by the disciples in his teaching, backed up by his incredible miracles that they witness, it still extends to us today. It is the master giving instructions to his disciples. And this is our first real motivation, the first reason for us to consider these things. The command needs to be followed, despite everything else that we all look at, but it's because it's the very command of God. The same master who actually had just been washing his disciples' feet, demonstrating this love. But this clearly wasn't the only example that Jesus was referring to, the washing of his disciples' feet, which brings us on to our second heading, the example. To be clear, when Jesus is talking here about loving one another, he's not saying, love one another like your two starry-eyed teenagers who have just crossed eyes across a school disco and falling head over and heels for each other. He's not saying that. He's not saying love each other as some kind of outpouring of physical attraction. Nor is he saying we should have some kind of love inspired by loyalty. Some kind of love that requires equality in the partnership between these two parties as some contractual obligation. Rather, Jesus is talking about a love that the Greeks described as the word agape. It's a love that, that gives and expects nothing in return. A love that is self-sacrificial. A love that is unconditional. How do we know this? Well, because of the example that Jesus gives us himself. The love that he shows us is giving and expects nothing in return. What are the words that we read in, in 1 John? This, love, not, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We love because he first loved us. When we were totally unlovable, when we were actively acting against him, God loved us. When we were rebels, God sent Jesus to literally love us to death. For the example to the disciples then, here is a, a list of how Jesus had loved them up to this point. As I have loved you, this is a, a list of, of ways he has loved them. Apart from the humility he has shown in becoming a man that we've already mentioned. What, what does, as I have loved you, exactly contain? Well, Matthew Henry, in his well-known commentary, lists Jesus' activities like this. It's quite a list, so I'm going to rifle through it. He spoke to them kindly, concerned himself heartily for them and for their welfare, instructed, counselled and comforted them, prayed with them and for them, vindicated them when they were accused, took their part when they were run down, and publicly owned them to be dearer to him than his mother, sister or brother. He reproved them for what was amiss, and yet compassionately bore with their failings, excused them, made the best of them, and passed by many an oversight." We only have to read the Gospels to, to know that these things are true. And we know that Jesus would go on to give his very life, and not just for his disciples then, but for all those who would accept his gift of love from the master of love. 
Jesus in the upper room had also loved them just moments before by allowing Judas to part their company. Jesus was accepting the goal of his mission, heading to that cross. Jesus has loved them. And now the standard is set. As I have loved you, so you must love each other. Third heading, the motivation. Well, what's the point? When Leona and I got married, we were confronted with a number of options. We were asked what vows we would like, what entrance music we would like, what songs we would like to sing, what readings we would like, and what passage we would like to have spoken on. Now, as, as I mentioned, the typical passage would be the 1 Corinthians passage. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But for the address, we discussed it, and we agreed that we would have, have Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, which starts as follows. I won't read the whole thing. It starts, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And it goes on for another few verses. Now, I'm sure a number of you here and a number of people at the wedding were thinking as that was read out, what exactly are they doing? That's not the 1 Corinthians passage. What's that even got to do with a wedding day? What's that got to do with love at all? Well, when we were talking it over, Leona and I pointed out that for our non-Christian friends and family, our wedding day, just like our lives, it didn't need to point at our love. It needed to point out the love that had been shown in Christ. If we focused just on our love, we would have missed the point. And that was one practical way that we could show to all men, at least in our sphere of influence, that we are Christ's disciples. That was us trying to live out our part of verse 35, the last part of verse 35. Because ultimately... Pointing out the love of Christ is the most loving thing that we can do. I know Christians get a a bad rep for talking about hell. I've had conversations with various numbers of people who have disputed Christians using hell at all in conversation. The following statement is, is thrown at Christians, and I know it is because it's been thrown at me. You say you're Christians, you're supposed to love people. How can you possibly justify telling people about hell? That doesn't sound loving. It's just scaring. In fact, I had one person say this to me at a a wedding breakfast of a friend. And you can imagine the stunned silence of everyone around, around the table, waiting to see what my response was going to be. And my answer was this. I don't know where this came from because I'm usually not this clever. On the Titanic, if the watchman had seen an iceberg and done nothing to warn the people, would they have been doing their job? Would they have been loving? Well, obviously, the answer was no. So I continue. If I truly believe that something that is far worse than an iceberg is coming to those that I say that I love, and I do nothing to tell people about it, would I be doing my job? Would I be loving? And the obvious answer is no. The answer wasn't given, and the conversation swiftly moved on. But the point is this. Our job is simple. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But how will they believe if they have not heard? We need to tell this message, this message of love. But, moreover, what does Jesus say here? We need to live it out. 
we need to live it. We need to affirm through our lives the love that we have been shown and that we tell others about affects all aspects of our lives. The Beatles classic, All You Need Is Love, is obviously well known, but I think it misses the point, at least for Christians. The line needs to be amended, doesn't it? All you need would make you think you need to be a permanent receiver of love. Taking and taking. Go out and get, get some love. Well, Jesus' instruction here is quite different. Love is not a thing you just take and take and take. The title of this morning's talk is Love is a Verb. Love is a doing word. In an age where it's all about instant gratification and getting what you can from whoever you can, these words are still as countercultural as they would have been then. A few years ago, I said we were going to come back to 1 Corinthians. A few years ago, I posted on my Facebook the 1 Corinthians passage, the love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it, doesn't, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, it's quite a comprehensive list, but rejoices in the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And one of my non-Christian friends responded to that post, those words are beautiful, where do they come from? They came from the master of love. Never before has a culture been so desperate for true love. And not the love of attraction or the love of loyalty, but they both have their place. Now our culture and those around us are desperate for a love that is gracious. A love that gives with no expectation of return. In fact, when people do love like this, it's treated with complete scepticism. And how sad a situation is that? How great an opportunity is it for Christ's church to put into action his instruction? And just imagine the outcome. Imagine a culture where the church was not divided, but united and loving. I was glad David mentioned about the churches in other countries and about practical help because the principle that we're looking at this morning applies to that. Imagine a church where the congregation doesn't think of their own needs first but by default thinks of the needs of others. Imagine a church where Christ's love was demonstrated to the lost. Imagine a church or what the church would look like as they bear with each other in all their faults and failures. Imagine Christian marriages where husbands' only concern was to love their wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificially and with humility, loving graciously, not expecting a return, but generous in their giving of love. Where wives love their husbands as the church seeks to love Christ, seeking to love as they have been loved. Imagine marriages where Christian couples don't compete for attention, but compete to be the biggest giver of love. Imagine a church where love wasn't just a concept which had lip service paid to it, but where it was real, tangible, reach-out-and-touchable love. John Piper, a well-known pastor in America, 
said this. The key for returning good for evil, keep being more amazed that your wrongs were forgiven than that you are wronged. And the same goes for loving each other. Keep being more amazed that you are loved by the master than that you should have to show love. The love you show, even each other, it will never meet the level of love you have been shown. And demonstrating this, work, this love to the world around will be so countercultural, so different in the face of the me, me, me society that we live in, that truly all men will know that you here are his disciples. In closing, I would just say this. It's easy to lose heart with this type of message as we look around the church today. We see division. But let us not sit in judgment over our brothers and sisters. Rather, let us recognize the love that we are called to share. Let us recognize the love Christ has shown. Let us go and do love. Following the instructions of Christ, our master, following Christ as our example, and to see his kingdom grow as the lost are saved as our motivation.